The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. And you've got to find out why. Hello, hello, and welcome to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris. So we've got an exciting episode for you coming up, including the introduction of our new Oscar series and a deep dive conversation with the director of one of this year's nominees for Best Documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, which you just heard a clip of at the top of the show. But first, uh, we are, what, week two, in the middle of week two? Oh my God, tomorrow would be... Two weeks exactly. Yes. Uh, Verilyn, my producer, is here. And we just felt that we couldn't open this show without addressing the current state of our affairs in mm. the U.S. And I feel like this is going to just be the case for a while now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this and my belief that everyone should kind of like stay in their lane and do what they do well and have the analysis that injustice to anyone is injustice for everyone. So, you know, we're going to continue to do a film and TV podcast, <laughs> but knowing that this is something that we're all kind of go like, actively going through. Right. And I mean, so the 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 ban that the Trump administration is calling not a Muslim ban, but it's clearly very much a Muslim ban that was enacted last week on Friday as of the time of this recording. Um, it makes me so ashamed of our country. Mm-hmm. And... And I will say it does. I mean, obviously, we're a film and TV podcast, so this actually does affect absolutely the world, like this world, because um, as many of you, I'm sure, know, one of the people who are who is nominated for an Oscar this year for Best Foreign Language Film, his name is Askar Farhadi. He's an Iranian filmmaker. He's won an Oscar for a Separation a few years ago, and now he's up for another nomination for The Salesman this year. He under Trump's ban, will not be allowed into the country. And so he's actively protesting, and others are calling for a protest of the Oscars. Some people are saying it shouldn't be held at all. Well, I mean, Verilyn, what is your thought on how to address this? You know, that's, I'm honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I don't know. I think there are, like, for it to happen and for people to take a stand is important. But I think a big, bigger stand would be for people not to go and not to show up at all. I think everyone has to kind of make whatever decision feels right for them, but do it purposefully, you know? Yeah, yeah. I fall on the on the side of my, one of my colleagues, Matthew Dessam. He wrote a piece earlier this week that calls not for a boycott of the Oscars, but a purposeful protest 
at the Academy Awards. And mm. his suggestion was that everyone who goes up should read a statement on behalf of a refugee or an immigrant. Mm. And I think that that's a good way because I, I feel like canceling the Academy Awards, especially on a night that's so historic, especially for people of color, specifically black people, um, I think that's that's exactly what Trump would love. Like Trump mm-hmm, would love that. Mm-hmm. Like he would love for the Academy Awards to be shut down. And I don't think that's the way to go about it. Yeah. I think the bigger, I mean, obviously, when celebrities speak on this stuff, it doesn't always come out right. And there is a chance that this could, you know, be more embarrassing than useful. But you know, I I think there should be a, a active protest there at the Oscars with anyone who wins and. Yeah, there. like some kind of I don't know. I just acknowledgement, feel, acknowledgement it. that yeah, it's happening, absolutely. and an acknowledgement from I think the best way to do that is as Matt suggested is an acknowledgement with the words of those who are being directly affected by it. That sounds like a plan. It's Matt, a good way to let's just send that to Denzel or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those are our thoughts, and you should definitely tweet at us or send us an email on your thoughts of how you know the Oscars should address this and also just like what are you doing yourself mm-hmm. to like fight and resist because i think we're all trying to figure out what's the best way to do it i would just say as someone that was brought to this country as a baby <laughs> and like didn't get my green card until i was an adult and recently became a citizen that i went to bed on saturday night like feeling so helpless <laughs> um but then i woke up in the morning and a community organizing group i belong to sent an email um, there was going to be a protest on on Saturday, and we all came together and made signs and vented. And so, like, whatever it is, like, even if it's just making signs for other people to go in March, just do something. So, good, good, good words of advice. Thank you, darling. So, with all that said, let's get down to business. As I mentioned at the end of our last episode, we'll be in full-fledged Oscar season mode over the next few weeks, taking a look back on some of the older films the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences once deemed worthy of nominating or even winning the Oscar. The common theme, they're all in some way, quote-unquote, important movies that reflect America's icky race relations. And so I'm excited to present to you today the first installment of Guess Who's Coming to Oscar. Adrian Keene, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and founder of the blog Native Appropriations, joined me to talk about the politics of Kevin Costner's passion project, Dances with Wolves, which won seven Academy Awards in 1991, including Best Picture and Best Director for Costner. Now, if it's been a while since you've watched or even thought about Dances with Wolves, a quick refresher. This movie is the movie in which Kevin Costner plays a Union soldier who befriends a tribe of Sioux warriors and becomes absorbed into their culture. It was and still is a pretty controversial film, and I was really excited to talk with Adrian about it. Check it out. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us on the show today. I'm excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I, I reached out to you in part because I follow your blog, and I know that several years ago, you wrote about finally seeing the movie for the first time. Um, and... I assume you were an adult by then. <laughs> yes, I was 24. Yes. And so what made you finally decide to sit down and watch it? And why did you go so long before sitting down and watching the movie? Um, I don't really know what the long delay was. It wasn't kind of like a 
there wasn't any protest there or anything like that. But the reason I finally did it was one of my good friends um, teased me to the point of uh, no return and said that I couldn't be a real native if I had never seen Dances with Wolves. I mean, this movie now came out, what was it, uh, like 26, 25 years ago at this yeah, point? Yeah, it's been a long time. And I feel as though at the time it was very much, you know, beloved. But like what before you saw it, like, what was it that you knew about it? I think the the narrative that I had kind of received about the film was that it was a film that a lot of white folks really, really liked because it had the really stereotypical visions of Native people as living on the plains and all the kind of Hollywood Western sort of stereotypes. So it was always kind of a joke, like a running joke. I knew references to it. There's actually another film that is really great uh, called Smoke Signals, which is in many ways kind of the opposite of um, Dances with Wolves in that it is a film that is about contemporary Native communities that really centers Native people um, and is kind of a good, in many ways, true reflection of what it's like to be a Native person in more modern times. And there's a scene in that movie where uh, one of the characters is teasing the other about um, how many times he's seen Dances with Wolves. And they're from a coastal community that doesn't hunt buffalo, doesn't live in teepees. And so he's teasing the other, Thomas, about that he got all of his notions of how to be an Indian from Dances with Wolves. I don't know what you're talking about half the time. Why is that? I don't know. I mean, you just go on and on talking about nothing. Why can't you have a normal conversation? You're always trying to sound like some damn medicine man or something. I mean, how many times have you seen Dances with Wolves? A hundred, two hundred? Oh, jeez. You have seen it that many times, haven't you? Don't you even know how to be a real Indian? I guess not. Well, shit, no wonder. Jeez. I guess I'll have to teach you then, ain't it? I mean, that sort of leads me into sort of the first thing I wanted to discuss about this film, which is the perception of accuracy and how accurate the movie is. Mm -hmm. One of the big running narratives was this was like the first time Native, Native Americans had been presented in a way that felt real and human, humanistic, as opposed to just stereotypes. Yeah, it's really interesting because the kind of background knowledge that I have from my own research and from um, my friends who are Lakota or um, from other kind of Plains communities, um, the original story, from what I understand, is actually about the Comanche, which makes a lot more sense in terms of like the horse culture sort of pieces of it and the um, some of the references. Like there's a whole, that whole scene where um, I think it's Ten Bears pulls out the conquistador helmet and talks about like, uh, we've dealt with these white people coming in and um, then we dealt with the Texans and we dealt with these other people. And regionally that was not the Lakota. Um, mm -hmm. That would have been the Comanche, which are much more um, South. And then, so there's that piece of it, um, which wouldn't have been something that a lot of people would have picked up on. Um, and then I've read really interesting things about the Lakota language that's used throughout. And at the time when this film was made, the big resurgence of um, Indigenous language revitalization that has happened um, in the last, like, 10, 15 years or so was just getting started. So there weren't a lot of 
uh, Lakota language speakers who are also able to translate. And so the woman who is incredible that translated the entire script, basically, because there's so much Lakota language, she is a woman. And there are two ways, of, from my understanding, there are two ways of speaking Lakota. There's a, a female way and a male way, depending on um, your identified gender. And so all of the male characters in the film are speaking in the, the female dialect of Lakota. Uh, so there's a lot of these, like, little things that are um, interesting in thinking about accuracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something uh, Russell Means, who is a well-known activist, and he was one of the founders of the American Indian um, movement, and he... He's also been an actor. He was in quite a few movies mm-hmm. and he was, I think, most notably The Last of the Mohicans. But he, he says the same thing where it's like he points out that the Lakota, you know, that they were all speaking the, the feminine language, um, which which is weird. Like, I, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, I don't think you would know the answer, but like, I'm curious as to how. Doris Lederjarge wouldn't have, you know, said this is a feminine language because she herself was Native American and and obviously knew the culture. So I wonder if that was something either of, you know, of the Hollywood. That's that's what happens when you distill things through a Hollywood lens and you you leave things out. No one bothered to ask. Um, That just seems like a very big thing (laughs) to leave out. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of... um... I was thinking about it last night, and uh, I, in my mind, this is a complete, total thing I made up, but I'm going to say that it was an act of resistance, (laughs) (laughs) and that she um, knew that, uh, because there's also still, with our languages, there's definitely, our native languages, there's definitely, um, there's tensions between needing to protect and um, preserve for community, and then letting... um, outsiders kind of learn the language, know the language, things like that. So Mm. um, there's a chance she could have been completely aware of it and did it as sort of an act of resistance against this big Hollywood um, portrayal of her community. But again, totally projection. But I I like that idea that maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, if that if that's if we look at it that way, I think that's really kind of awesome and sort of negates the need the need for accuracy in a way. Um, yeah. Although at the same time, well, I guess it doesn't really matter if, you know, the typical American who is going to see this would not um, would not even know, like, there are male and female versions. So it's not mm-hmm. like anything's being lost in that sort of translation. Um, yeah. I mean, there's also one of the other things, like, just going off of the language is the fact that many, when it came out, many that like one of the things it got points for, you know, cultural points for is the fact that they do use subtitles in the film. And there's a mm-hmm. lot, lot of scenes in which um, the Lakota, the Sioux Lakota tribe are speaking in their language. And I can see why that's a big, that that would be a big deal, but it also seems like that's another way for, you know, the American people to be like, oh, see, there, we're, this is this is another example of this movie being very accurate and, and, and ignoring sort of the other issues that may arise from the film. Yeah, I think um, it was interesting on this second time of me watching it to 
kind of step back and recognize how cool that actually is, that so much of the film is subtitled and is in spoken Lakota. Um, so I did definitely have that appreciation this time that like, wow, 25, 26 years ago, um, there was a film that there are entire, I mean, it's such a long movie, so there are big <laughs> chunks of it that are, there's no English spoken at all. Um, but I do think in some ways that it kind of adds to that continuing narrative of real Indians were in the past, real Native people uh, were existed during this time, real Native people speak their language. Um, just uh, kind of, again, the solidifying of um, that narrative over and over. Mm-hmm. I, um, I spent some time out at the Dakota Access um, Pipeline camps in uh, North Dakota, and there's a lot of Lakota language that is spoke, uh, was spoken there. Um, anytime there were folks at the, the microphone or in community spaces, there was, you heard a lot of Lakota. And so to hear the very um, strange accents that a lot of the actors, the Native actors had, because not um, very few of them were actually Lakota right. um, and didn't speak the language. So uh, comparing that to my experiences out at Sandy Rocket was kind of funny to me to hear like Graham Greene sort of stumbling through this uh, Lakota language that isn't his actual uh, Native language. Mm, yeah. And in fact, Graham Greene was actually the one of the f- actors who was nominated for the for mm-hmm. for the film. So so this isn't the first time that I watched the movie ever. Um I like you had sort of known about it through every sort of you know parody that's ever been done and and mm-hmm. no like every every year whenever there's a list of Oscar movies that shouldn't have won Oscars it seems seems to be that one is on the list because that year it was up against uh, Goodfellas and and uh, Kevin Costner won best director over Martin Scorsese and so I think in hindsight people think it's not that great of a movie but one thing that really bothered me about the film is the fact the voiceover narration of Kevin Costner's yeah. character. I mean, first, there's the sort of more superficial part of it, which is I just think he's he the way he reads his diary entries uh, is very it's stilted. So weird. It's so stilted. Like it feels so. Yeah. The fierce one, as I call him, seems a very tough fellow. I hope I never have to fight him. From the little I know, he seems to be honest and very direct. I like the quiet one immensely. He's been patient and inquisitive. He seems eager to communicate. I would conclude that he is a man of some weight among his people. Everything about him screams this is 1989 as opposed to 1863. It's, suppo- <laughs> it's supposed to be, he's got like this mullet going on and he's supposed, he, he's, I don't know, it, it just bothered me. But there's also something about the way in which he describes the Native American characters throughout the voiceover narration and the positioning of himself as innately one with nature and so then he's mm-hmm. also so then he's also very close like even before he's interacted with any of the the um kicking bird or stands with any before he interacts with any of them he's sort of positioned as this character who is already naturally one with nature and spiritual in a way that yes. his white compatriots uh in in the war are not 
Yeah, it's definitely, I had completely forgotten that there's the entire sort of backstory before you get to his outpost, <laughs> that scene where he, at the very beginning, like, rides his horse through the battlefield and is, like, giving himself up kind of thing and magically isn't hit by any of the bullets um, and is kind of, like, one with his horse. and. Yeah. So that actually lays the groundwork for a lot of it. And like you said, already it's positioning him as this like magical white guy. Like he's not a regular white guy. He is a magical white guy. And then he has this relationship with his horse. And then all of a sudden the wolf shows up. And so to see it this time, it's definitely very apparent that he, as the viewer, we're supposed to see him already as not like the other white people, as more in tune with nature, more in tune with the animals, and therefore better positioned to become a native person, basically. Right. And while it can be argued that, you know, we actually see more, the the characters that he interacts with are not perceived as the, you know, the, the savage, the, that, typically gets ascribed to Native Americans. That's the other side of the coin, which is they're just very, like, very, very peaceful, very, in in that same way, spiritual and of of that nature. Isn't there, and there's also mm-hmm. a scene where he teaches them how to fight, which yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't really know is, like, is that, that seems not accurate. Weren't the Sioux good fighters, great fighters? Like that was. Yeah. And they definitely would have had guns by then. Like in terms of timeline wise, like I feel like that was not um, accurate at all. And it continues the, um, the best kind of fake title for dances with wolves that I really like is white man colon the superior Indian. um, (laughs) Because that's kind of what happens is he, uh, not only does he get accepted into the community, like he becomes um, kind of on the same level as the the holy person in the community. Uh, then he is the one who saves them from the Pawnee, and the whole the whole Pawnee thing is very interesting too because they serve as the the bad Indians that we know so well from other kind of Hollywood Westerns and things. So that narrative isn't absent from the film. It's not like we just have the peaceful, mystical, connected to nature, uh, native people. We still have the bloodthirsty, wild, um, painted and angry native stereotypes through those characters. Right. The last thing I want to ask you, on your blog, after you had watched the film for the first time, you you point out the epilogue that appears on screen as Kevin Costner's character and Mary McDonald's character ride off uh, to and leave the, the Sioux tribe behind because they feel like their presence will only endanger them more. And so the caption reads... 13 years later, their homes destroyed, their buffalo gone, the last band of free Sioux submitted to white authority of Fort Robinson, Nebraska. The great horse culture of the plains was gone, and the American frontier was soon to pass into history. Well, I know what your thoughts are, but could you talk a little bit more about like why that <laughs> epilogue just kind of bugs you and why it's so problematic? Yeah, um, to me, it was just so strange because we're watching contemporary Native people play historic Native characters on the screen. So obviously, Lakota people didn't cease to exist. And so to me, it was just a strange way of furthering the disappearance narrative that, like, Natives are not here anymore. 
which there are many ways that epilogue could have been worded that could have acknowledged the huge cultural shift that had to happen, but still acknowledged that Lakota people still exist today. Yeah. And it also seems kind of vague. Like it says the great horse culture of the plains was gone and the American frontier was soon to pass into history. So like at the same time, it also seems to be lamenting the end of white colonialism as well of the of the west yeah (laughs) like it's it which doesn't like you can't have it both ways like you either lament one or you lament the other because (laughs) one happened because of the other uh and that's what i often bring up that i call dances with wolves i think i do it in that post as well as just the imperialist nostalgia kind of fantasy this idea that you ruined something and then are longing for that thing that you decimated. Like, oh, these beautiful things, like blah, blah, blah. But without um, implicating yourself in the fact that it was white Western colonialism that caused that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on. It was great to chat with you. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me and for forcing me to watch Dances with Wolves again. I apologize. (laughs) Uh, I hope it wasn't too painful the second time around. This time I got to live tweet part of it, so that made it more entertaining. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Haitian-born Raoul Peck is an acclaimed director and activist best known for making two features about the polarizing first prime minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba. The 1990 documentary Lumumba, Death of a Prophet, and the 2000 dramatization simply titled Lumumba. With his new film, I Am Not Your Negro, Peck brings to life the written words of James Baldwin through the voiceover of Samuel L. Jackson while weaving in a variety of archival clips of Baldwin himself, unpacking the history of the United States' ill-treatment of Blacks. Peck does all of this while connecting it with imagery from the here and now of Black Lives Matter protests and recorded instances of police brutality against people of color. I make film not because I wanted to to make film and tell stories. I I make film because... uh, I think uh, film is a is an incredible instrument to engage, to fight, to you know, to to go further. I am not your Negro is framed around "Remember This House," the unfinished manuscript of Baldwin's proposed memoir about the civil rights era and his relationships with three slain leaders of the movement: Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Medgar Evers. After Baldwin died in 1987, the publishing company McGraw-Hill sued his estate for the return of the advances they had provided to him before his death. I began my conversation with Peck by asking him about how he obtained the rights to use the manuscript in his film. Well, uh, I knew to, you know, in order to do anything, uh, I would say major on Baldwin, you, you, you needed to have not only the rights, but to have access to a lot of things. So I just, you know, wrote to the estate and... Uh, and uh, they were known, or they are known, for sometimes not even responding to 
to your inquiries. And but in that case, I, I receive a, a, an answer within a few days, and uh, and they asked me to come visit, which I did. Uh, and uh, and I met uh, Gloria Carifa Smart, who's the James Walden younger sister, who I've been working with him uh, since the age of twenty one, and uh, she knew of my work. You know, and I think that's why she, they really opened the door for me. And in fact, Gloria was instrumental in, uh, you know, because the story of Remember Your House, uh, this house was not that known. I didn't know about that uh, mm. particular uh, um, book that was not written. And when Gloria gave me the, these letters and, and the notes, uh, it opened up a new field for me. And, and I thought, well... Uh, James Baldwin never succeeded in writing that uh, book, and and I n knew how important that book was for him. You know, he basically wrote, you know, I know, you know, to his agent saying, you know, I need money right now, but uh, even this, if this book will not bring money, this is the book I need to write right now. Mm. And he was writing out of this sort of desperation about the killing of this man who he knew. And also about where the movement was at that moment and seeing all the leaders being killed one after the other. And each one of these deaths, you know, he felt, you know, uh, physically. And uh, so I, I, you know, furthered my research, but knowing uh, most of Baldwin, I don't see what he would have written more. And I say, well, the film would be this book. In fact, this book is already written. It's just spread out mm. throughout his body of work. And my job is to go look for it and put it together. As I understand it, it took you almost a decade, right? From when yes. you conceived it until yeah. now when it's it's here. And obviously a decade is a very long time. And and then America did not have a black president. Um, we didn't have this these high-profile police shootings. And we see these things in the film. What, what do you think is the biggest change you've seen since you first started this project? up until now. Well, that's the thing, you know, um I never wanted to to be current in the sense that uh, I follow the news. I mm -hmm. I follow the 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 historical moment of the day. It was always for me to go back to the fundamentals. And and that's the perfect proof that uh, it's the right approach because no matter what would have happened in this country, Baldwin would have as much be as impactful as he is now mm -hmm. uh, with the the new president than if it was uh, Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. uh, f because on the level of uh, change and transformation, uh, no matter who is president, you know the situation did not move the way it should have moved. And that's the today. the sad part about it. Also, the great like it also speaks to how just important his work was but it's also kind of sad that that's the case yes yes know? yes but and and it shows us how important it is to step back a bit and and try to understand what's going on and not just follow up whatever is the flavor of the day mm -hmm. and and you get confused you 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 don't understand in fact what's going on and baldwin have already written those words 40 50 years ago and we should ask ourselves, how come they are so pertinent, so right, so impactful? Because he touches the real problem of this country in particular. You know, the fact that there are two parallel worlds, 
that exist and never uh, mixed mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that we never have that conversation as they call it uh, and that the structural uh, um, reason of uh, discrimination of poverty were never addressed and was and it's not because we elected a, a, a black president that it will change anything Baldwin have a, a, a quote uh, saying that uh, because they ask him the question, you know, what what is it for you uh, if we finally will have a black president in this country? He said, well, uh, the real question is not who's going to be the next black first black president. The real question is what country he's going to be the president of, mm -hmm. and that's exactly the the real question. Do mm. I? I see parallels between Baldwin and and Lumumba, Patrice Lumumba, who you did both a uh, documentary on Lumumba called Death of a Prophet, and then you also, uh, about a decade later, made a feature film. Do you consider Baldwin to be a prophet? Well, he, he behaved like a prophet because mm -hmm. his words are so strong. His words have survived him. And and he he was a preacher at the age of fourteen. Yeah. So he learned how to speak to people and how to speak to adults and how to uh, not only uh, be himself but also to to be above himself and above everything else to have a distance to whatever is happening and to find the core uh, of of the reality and to put it back to you in a way that it makes sense. I mean, it's so true. Like, ever since I started, or ever since I saw your film last week, at the time of this recording, it was a week ago, I went back and I reread The Devil Finds Work, which a lot of that is also weaved into your film. And man, it's just still so, so relevant and still, like you said, very impactful. So, what I, what I think is interesting about your film is the fact that his words are really all we hear throughout the film. You know, we hear. Uh, there are occasions where we we he's in, you we have clips of him in the Dick Cavett interviews and doing other speeches and we might hear other folks asking him questions but it's mostly his voice. Why did you choose to use in addition to remember this house the the devil finds work and and other excerpts from his later period from the beginning and my project was always to how do I bring Baldwin back. How do I bring those words, these words that have been so important in my life and in the life of many other people and many other generations, you know, in a time where we really need it, where there is an absence of authoritative voice, intellectual voice and progressive voice. And Baldwin um, is exactly that. So I knew that I would not uh, make a film uh, with, uh, you know, I didn't want to have any interpreter of Baldwin. I didn't have, I didn't want any talking head uh, about the work of Baldwin. Yeah. And it was not going to be a biography. It was about Baldwin speaking to us today. So I have to make sure that it's his word, it's him, it's his thinking, and he's looking at us and talking directly to us. Mm. So... Um, Creatively, it, it was very difficult to get to that point, of course. And uh, remember, this house gave me the sort of uh, 
I would say, red uh, storyline about the death of those three friends. Uh, in fact, the life and the death and the assassination of those three friends, which was the core impulse for Baldwin to write this book. But of course, because my purpose was to bring Baldwin back and to bring Baldwin's words back, I, of course, went through other stuff that were, for me, as important. Mm -hmm. You know, Deville's fine work, of course, but there are other uh, essays that I quote and that I use, you know, all those underlying sentences uh, that uh, in all the Baldwin books I had, you know, you, you always uh, tend to underline stuff that you like in a book. Yeah, or in same. <laughs> and, you know, it, that's why when I say this film took 10 years to make, but it took even much longer if I count all those material that I've worked with over the years. So mm -hmm. I went back to those books. And in fact, with Baldwin, you can, if you start underlining, you know, the whole book basically will be underlined. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was about to bring all this, you know, in a, in a, in one uh, film, in one document that uh, of course shouldn't be didactic should also be an, an, a film, an entertaining film. You know, I, I don't think that it has to be uh, a contradiction that you can have pleasure seeing a film and at the same time educate yourself mm -hmm. and, and, and find yourself uh, through this film. And, and that was the, 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 the real challenge that I had, you know, and, uh, and that's why I use a lot of music. I, I use a lot of images of Hollywood film because those films shaped my mind and and gave me an image of myself that was not quite the reality. Well, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because the, I think a lot of times when we talk about Baldwin, we forget that he not only was a great novelist and playwright and, and essayist, but he also was a really smart film critic and a lot like that is the devil finds work that is him engaging with the images that he he grew up watching well it's not just a, a film critic as as per se right, it's yeah. a film critic and who put everything in perspective in, yes. in a historical uh, perspective which means not only he critic uh, a, a particular film but he also gives you what role this particular film, its aesthetic, his uh, character, the story itself, right. uh, give uh, as an image of you and what it makes of you. You know, the, the whole creation of the uh, nigger in Hollywood film. Uh, he, he shows you how it's made and why it's wrong, what it doesn't reflect the reality. Mm -hmm. Up to his criticism of television you know, being like the the a place of confusion. Yeah, and he he says a, at one point in the in the narration, we hear him say, "These images are all meant to reassure us." One one other moment I wanted to to sort of pinpoint that I found was maybe the most stark, or like besides his words themselves, the moment where he's talking about Gary Cooper and Doris Day. And we see these images of Doris Day and Lover Come Back. Really, Linus, you shouldn't be embarrassed to have people see you like that. Well, I... I... No, you look wonderful without your clothes. So do you. Oh, I meant... So did I. 
and his line is from I think it's from the white problem that that essay the white problem where he's talking about how Gary Cooper and Doris Day are like the most grotesque examples of innocence and the world I've ever seen has yeah and then we see Doris Day and then it it you know it fades into a man being lynched a woman body. A woman body. From a tree. What? I mean, why? Well, it's at some point you need to show the violence of this exclusion, the violence of this divided society. And uh, we grew up as black people and myself. I grew up all my life uh, learning the culture of everybody else beside my own culture. And, and you, then I'm, you moved around a lot, too. You and were I moved in around. Haiti. I, I was born in Haiti. I, I went to Congo. I learned another culture. I went to France. I, I learned French history. I, le- I went studying to Germany. I learned Germany history uh, and literature. And I learn American literature, um, and I know my own country's literature. And, and then I'm facing people who don't even dare learn their own history, let alone mine. And they are judging me, or they are deciding for me. This is simply unacceptable. Uh, so... Um, you live through your life uh, with people who have only seen one part of what the world is. And they are the winner. They are the one who decide for you. They are the one who decide what you should see, what film you should make, uh, what story you should tell. And they don't realize the whole bigger world that exists parallel to that. And to put those two images of Doris Day and a woman hanging from a black woman hanging from a tree, this is violent indeed. But this is the violence that we experience every day in the most ridiculous situation. You know, you take the subway, you go buy bread, you go, you know, those are moments that every black person or every woman, by the way, that's the same for a woman uh, in her daily life. You know, all those abuse, you know, violent or less violent or consciously or unconsciously. But this is our life, you know, when you are not in the ruling ruling class, you know, meaning basically, I know it's reductive, but white, uh, you know, male Mm -hmm. person, you know. And so it it was not an easy decision to to make that kind of... uh, uh, cut in the film, but it for me it reflects the reality. The, and you, you can't make a, a film about about rape and not showing what it means to be raped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also a moment in the film where we get a a clip of him on a on, on a talk show, and a white guest. Essentially, he says, "Why don't you? <laughs> why do you have to harp on color all the time?" I have more in common with a a black scholar than I have with a white man who's against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, 
I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong, I might have gone to Timbuktu, I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to be a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. Baldwin says, you know, I moved to Paris because that was the only way I was able to be free and do my creative work. But then we also know he came back because he kind of felt that pull to be active here in the States. Have you, as someone who has lived many places and has always lived, obviously, as a black man, have you ever felt that you could do something like that where you could get away from all of those pressures? And if so, what was that like for you? Well, uh, I mean, that's what happened to me, except that I did not decide that. My parents decided for me. Mm. When I left Haiti at the age of eight and went to Congo, I had to learn that the Congolese were not people with with, uh, spears and and dancing people all every day on the tarmac of the airport when I came down the plane. So you you thought that? Of course, because my image was Tarzan. Mm, You know, as a kid, I watched all the Tarzan, Johnny Westmiller films. So that's the idea. And, and that's exactly what film does throughout the world, in particular American film, because if there is an imperialistic part that went all over the, the globe, it's Hollywood movies. They became, you know, what movie movies are. And you learn from them, you know. And uh, don't forget, as a young boy or black boy, you, you are also playing cowboy and Indians. And most of the time, nobody wants to be an Indian. Everybody wants to have the guns and be a cowboy. And that's how uh, ideology penetrates your your mind. And that's how you have a certain idea of who you are, which is not the reality. And, And to come back to the show, to the Dick Cavett show... Yes, you can see, well, Baldwin is speaking and have a lot of room. He had more than 40 minutes to express his, his idea. Nobody is interrupting him. Uh, and he can follow through an idea. But the system had put this professor, Yale professor, at the end of the show. And he was supposed to come, uh, come out and punish Baldwin. Yeah, undercut and, him. And undercover. You say, yeah, that's nice, all you have said before, but here's the deal. And uh, uh, fortunately, Baldwin is not somebody you could just uh, push aside like this. And he, not only he, he responded to him, but he shamed him. You know, it's it, it was a very humiliating sequence. Yeah, I, yeah that moment was great. I mean, really, every, every time Baldwin spoke, it was great. I do want to ask you, because I didn't realize until the end of the film that Samuel L. Jackson was the person who was narrating this parts where we don't see the actual footage of Baldwin speaking. 
he sounded nothing like Samuel L. Jackson. What? Why was he the choice? Like, what made you think he was the right person well, for this? First of all, you're saying narrating. He's not narrating. Well, he is. True. He, he is, is the voice. He is and, and that's the trick because otherwise you would have feel that there are two voices in the film. Mm. But the idea was from the start to be Baldwin, to be inside Baldwin. Baldwin is the one who's who's talking to us throughout the film. You see him on image. Sometimes you just see his, his voice and you, you see uh, whatever he's explaining. But you are all the time with him in his head. And Samuel's uh, extraordinary work was that, to be able to catch that inner voice and be Baldwin. Not just uh, not narrating mm. from the distance or, or doing the usual voiceover. And... You've talked in the past about how difficult it is to it's been to make films, the type of films you make, the films that are very political, the films that um, are not easy films about genocide, about uh, overthrowing very powerful people. And how obviously it took you about a decade to make the movie, but how difficult was it for you to ultimately sell this film? And have you found it easier over the years throughout your career to get your films out there than you, you have in the past? Well, um, I think I, I have the, the privilege or the luxury to, to be able to tell myself I don't make film for money. Uh, if the film makes money and is seen widely, yes, of course. But that's not the, the, the reason, that's not the, the starting point. And, and to make a movie, of course, you need money. And um, I'm not sure that this film would have been possible 20 years ago. But um, because I'm an older filmmaker and I made other films, I have people who trust my work. And I was able to um, have the, the, the starting money to do my research, to buy rights, to to start uh, working on it concretely until I was ready to show something. Uh, that's what happened with this project. And it took a lot of years before I, I, had, I feel that I had enough to submit it to other type of founding who would probably not have said anything uh, if I had gone too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and yes, I, I was able to find partners, you know, in any system, you, you can find allies, you know, you, you have to know the right moment and, and the right person sometimes, but, uh, I've made enough films so that some people could trust me about this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably one of my rare film where I, from the beginning, I knew, uh, I'm not going to take any prisoners. I'm not going to restrain myself. I'm going to go all the way with Baldwin. I cannot be less than Baldwin own um, you know bravery and uh, straightforward uh, way of talking. You know, I had to go all the way with mm. him. What do you think is the most common misconception people have today about Baldwin? Well, unfortunately, I, I think most people don't know who Baldwin is. Uh, a lot of people, even intellectuals, or even people who went to college, they never read Baldwin. That's a reality. Baldwin is probably one of the best American writer ever. Not 
Best Black American Writer. Best American Writer. He invented a language. He did things that nobody else was writing at the time, in the 60s, in the 50s even. So his place is, is uh, exceptional. And uh, the idea of this film is also to bring Baldwin back to the curriculum, to schools, to university. He should be studied by any American uh, young person because he's part of the heritage. He's probably one of the few who, again, not only understood what America is and where America came from and what what are the 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 inhabitant and of this country and their conflict so i do hope that uh, and and it there is a movement coming out now and people are beginning to un- really understand uh, you know what who he was and how, why is he so important uh, before that, it was like a minority. It was like a secret weapon <laughs> for a lot of people. Yeah. Nobody knows about him, but we keep it, keep him for ourselves, for yeah. our thoughts and and our own thinking. But now, uh, I think uh, there is a, a great opportunity to make sure that uh, much more people know who he is and what uh, and know his writing, especially. Hmm. For my final question, you. I know you spoke about, as a kid, some of your earliest images were of Tarzan and Spears. and But I would like to know if you can remember now, the last time you saw, you saw yourself on screen, whether it was a TV show you recently watched or a movie, something that you feel represented you in some way. Well, um, there are a lot of great, great filmmaker who did incredible film and if I can talk for the generation just before me people like Charles Burnett like Haile Gerima like uh, Billy Rudbury those are great filmmakers Mm -hmm. or Kathleen Collins or you know Julie Dash uh, Uzan Palsi, all those people. There are a lot of great black filmmakers, you know, African-American, um, African uh, from the Caribbean, like myself. Uh, you know, they, they, they have been uh, doing that for, for a long time. Uh, and yes, it has changed, but the, the problem is that each film from these people is a miracle. Yeah, uh, you have to go through a lot of hurdles before you can really make uh, your your ideas on the screen, or even you know what somebody like um, uh, um, Denzel Washington is doing. Uh, there are others, Spike Lee's as well. Mm. You know, it's it's how do we approach our reality from our own point of view. Uh, I may sometimes not agree, but at least I see real people. I see people that looks not only looks like me, but who are real. Mm-hmm. You know, not uh, a cliche, not a one-dimensional character. And in the same for women, for gay people, for Native American, and you know, we don't see enough of this. And and um, so it's it's uh, there have been some progress on that, but. The real progress will come when uh, you will have uh, executive 
from all minorities who really have the power to greenlight a film. Yeah. Do you think Baldwin, that, I mean, what you were speaking to just earlier about now we're seeing real people, real images of black people. Do you, that was one of Baldwin's biggest critiques of film is that you never saw real people, even black or white. Do you think he would be more impressed or at least more content with where we are now? Well, he, he would probably um, try to see uh, the parts where there was some progress, but he would exactly keep on addressing the, the real fundamental situation, which is still with that progress, we are far from having solved the, the core uh, problem, which is uh, the inequality uh, in power here and because without power you can't change anything and as long as the other has the power over you there is no change you know when i can go to uh, uh, an executive uh, in hollywood and say i want to make a film on james baldwin uh, without having to spend three-thirds of my time explaining who james baldwin is why is he important to me and only have a few minutes to pitch my actual film. So as long as is, this is not possible, there will not be any real change. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Peck. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure too for me. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, that was quite a bit that we got through today. It was really fun to finally force myself to see Dances with Wolves so that I could talk about it with Adrian. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us. And of course, it was an honor to discuss I Am Not Your Negro with the Oscar-nominated Raul Peck. So thank you, Raul, for joining us today as well. I Am Not Your Negro actually opens wide in theaters this weekend, so everyone should definitely go see it. And just so you know, for next week, as a continuation of our Guess Who's Coming to Oscar series, we will be discussing the 1957 film Sayonara. That film has largely been forgotten today, but it does feature a performance by Miyoshi Yumeki, the only Asian woman to win an Oscar in any of the acting categories. So tune in next week for that discussion and let us know what you think of Guess Who's Coming to Oscar. You can tweet at us with the hashtag OscarsRepresent. Represent is produced by the lovely and amazing Verlyn Williams, who puts up with all of my many <laughs> stops and starts. <laughs> She's a wonderful editor. <laughs> the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Barras is chief content officer of Panoply. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And you can also shoot us an email with all of your thoughts at represent at slate.com. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Music.